Hello, and welcome to the Urology COVID Lecture Series podcast, brought to you by the UCSF Department of Urology. In today's episode, we have Dr. Jay Rahman from Penn State Health talking about microhematuria guidelines. Um, uh, l- let me get started and um, uh, get started with my talk. I, I would first of all uh, like to thank uh, very much uh, UCSF and the team there for putting together this uh, outstanding lecture series. I'm, our residents have been enjoying it very much and it's certainly my pleasure to be part of this uh, program. Um, I also want to introduce uh, Jay Folletra, who's going to be uh, one of our residents who will be helping moderate. So if you have any questions at the end of the talk through the chat function, he's happy to collate those and then, uh, and then farm them out to me to answer some of the questions. So what I'd like to talk to you about over the next uh, 40 to 45 minutes or so are the new microhematuria guidelines. Uh, and these guidelines uh, were due to come out uh, actually at the AUA meeting just uh, a few days ago, um, or projected to be a few days ago, but they are going to be um, uh, on the website and certainly in print version, and so you all are getting a, a little bit of a sneak peek at what we're going to be seeing. And um, um, I'd start off by first um, running through some of my disclosures. And none of these disclosures pertain to any of the material that I'm going to be talking about with regards to the guidelines, but admittedly, I have been a part of a number of different urinary biomarker trials that have looked at the value of biomarkers in both the hematuria and a bladder cancer surveillance setting. Probably my more relevant disclosures are that indeed um, I am or was a member of the uh, a panel member of the 2020 microhematuria guidelines, uh, and that's what I'm going to be touching on today. Um, but I've also been a co-author of the Campbell's uh, urology chapter on hematuria, along with uh, my my good friends and actually former resident colleagues. Uh, Steve Borgian and Dan Barocas. So we've been writing the chapter together for the last four or five years, and we've actually been giving the instructional course at the AUA on hematuria over the past five years, and that course spans everything from microscopic hematuria all the way to uh, gross macroscopic disease. So what I want to do is really divide this talk into three components. One is to highlight why are, what's the whole purpose of evaluating hematuria, what's the scope of the problem, and that's partly for us, but partly for what we should be communicating to our primary care colleagues. Um, I'm going to highlight some of the shortcomings of prior guidelines, and I'm going to really focus on the AUA guidelines because I feel like a lot of what we've done in the 2020 guidelines is try to improve upon what we've had historically. And then I'm going to walk you through some of the key elements of the new guidelines that will be coming out. And admittedly, I'm not going to be reading through all 26 guideline statements, but rather group them into various different components of what you would see in practice and how you would perhaps apply them uh, to when you see patients. So let's start with the first of these. Um, Why do we evaluate hematuria? So if you take a step back and we talk about all the things that urologists see, Um, Indeed, hematuria is one of the most common diagnoses. It accounts for over 25% of all urologic evaluations. And if you look at screening studies, and screening studies are always a little bit problematic because it depends upon the population that you're looking at, but overall, screening studies that have been reported 
Note a prevalence of about 6.5% amongst healthy participants for hematuria. And this, of course, as you can see from the range, is, is fairly extensive based upon the population that you're looking at. Now, as many of us know, the differential diagnosis is quite extensive. It really includes almost any component of the urinary tract that's in contact with urine. So this can be up in the kidneys, it can include the ureter, the bladder, in men, the prostate, and certainly in men and women, the urethra. And, and indeed, the differential is extensive and includes uh, a lot of the stuff that we think most commonly about, which is cancer or malignancy, stone disease, infection, uh, and in men, benign prostatic diseases or even malignant prostatic diseases, and then perhaps some less common etiologies as listed below, stricture, trauma, medical renal disease, and other sorts of causes. And obviously the goal of a hematuria evaluation is to look for and identify any one, of all, any one or all of these causes, but frankly, most of the hematuria guidelines are geared towards the whole concept of identifying malignancy um, in patients. So what is this risk of malignancy? Um, this is a really nice study published recently in European Urology. This is the DETECT-1 collaboration. This was a rather large hospital conglomerate, 40 hospitals between 2000, 2016, 2017, looking at patients with hematuria, evaluated by imaging, as well as cystoscopy. And what they found was the following. There's about a 10% incidence of urinary tract cancer, and not surprisingly, it was higher for gross or macroscopic hematuria, 13.8%, versus that for microscopic hematuria, about 3%. And what types of cancer did these patients have? The majority were bladder, but there was also about 1% or less of kidney, upper tract carcinomas, as well as prostate cancer. So with that knowledge in hand, what, what are some of the shortcomings that we have? Well, this is a problem related, perhaps not so much to urologists, but to our primary care colleagues, which is that a lot of patients who have hematuria are not referred for urologic evaluation. In fact, some of the contemporary studies suggest less than 50% of patients with hematuria are referred, and this is particularly exacerbated in women, where perhaps only about a quarter of women with hematuria are referred for evaluation. And we'll touch on that point in a minute about why, why women are such a low number. Now, even if we look at those patients who have a risk factor for cancer, perhaps the older male patient, the smoker, under 25% receive any kind of imaging, and only about one in 10 undergo a cystoscopy. So there are clearly gaps in who we are evaluating. Even beyond that, as I alluded to a minute ago, there are some at-risk populations, and women is one of them. So this is a nice study that came out of the University of Chicago group that looked at women, or all patients, but women and men, who were diagnosed with bladder cancer, and then looked back in time to say, what was the interval from the, their presentation with hematuria until they were diagnosed with bladder cancer? And as you might imagine, the diagnosis interval was much longer in women, and it was thought to be attributable to either urinary tract infection, gynecologic sources, or one of many reasons why perhaps primary care physicians or even certain urologic practitioners can attribute blood in the urine in women. And these women furthermore were less likely to receive any kind of imaging. 
African-American patients are also at risk, both men and women. Uh, a nice study out of Vanderbilt performed early, uh, just uh, two years ago showed that African-American patients were less likely to undergo any aspect of hematuria evaluation, whether that be a urology referral, a cystoscopic evaluation, or uh, imaging of any sort. And so hopefully through this first few minutes, I've been able to highlight for you that certainly evidence-based evaluation is certainly necessary and necessary to essentially allow us to adequately detect and pick up those patients who have pathologies, namely cancer. So I'm gonna transition now with that framework and talk a little bit about the shortcomings of some of our prior guidelines, particularly the AUA guidelines. So I put up this slide here, and there's gonna be this slide in the next slide, not so much for you to look at this and try to scrutinize and, and really glare at the, the tiny writing, but to emphasize the following. There are a lot of guideline statements for microscopic hematuria. You have the AUA guidelines as listed up here. These are the 2012 guidelines. You have the Canadian consensus statement, the American College of Physicians, NICE, the British system, the Japanese Urologic Association, the Dutch Urologic Association, the Scottish guidelines, the Swedish guidelines. And every one of them, as you can see from the different tabs across the top, have slightly different criteria that they are using. And so here's the scope of the problem. There's significant variability. There's variability with respect to what is defined as microscopic hematuria, who should we be evaluating? How do we evaluate them? What is the type of evaluation that be, should be performed? When should this be done? What time frame? And who's the audience? Are these guidelines geared towards urologists, urology practitioners, urology residents, those in training, or to primary care physicians, or perhaps in the ideal world, possibly both? So let me take you back to the 2012 guidelines. So as many of you know, the 2012 microscopic hematuria guidelines said that all patients over 35 years of age with microscopic hematuria should be evaluated with CT urography and a cystoscopy. And this was largely agnostic or blind to an individual patient's risk. And admittedly, the goal of this guideline was to really increase the testing to minimize the risk of a missed cancer diagnosis. And, it, and then that was frankly the, 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 the sort of the overarching goal was do not miss a potential cancer diagnosis. And indeed, when we look at the 2012 AUA guidelines and we compare them to other guidelines panels, a uh, mission was accomplished there. So this is a very nice study published by Matt Nielsen and his group in JAMA Internal Medicine last year. And it looked at a theoretical model of simulated primary uh, cancers. And what it basically identified is, if you look on the far right in what I've highlighted in red, the AUA guidelines were going to pick up the most number of cancers and were going to miss the least number of cancers when you compare that to, say, four other guideline statements that are listed here, the Dutch, the Canadian, Kaiser, and the Hematuria Risk Index guidelines. 
But the consequence of this is twofold. First of all, because the CT scan is a requisite part of the 2012 guidelines, this created a significant associated cost. And this cost was much greater than the Dutch or the Canadian guidelines, which in many cases don't use any type of imaging or renal ultrasonography. And certainly the Kaiser and the HRI, which use perhaps CT scan, but not ubiquitously. The other issue is that the ubiquitous use of CT imaging increased the theoretical risk of radiation-induced cancers. So many of us know through using various different models, and the Bayer model is probably one of the ones that's most commonly used, which can take um, the cumulative radiation exposure that a patient receives through one or two or three or multiple CAT scans and can project the lifetime risk of radiation-induced cancers. And there are always some um, flaws in, in extrapolating, but nonetheless, if you use some of these models, you can see that the AUA guidelines from 2012 had a significantly higher likelihood of predicted lifetime cancer risk from CT imaging when you compared that to, for example, the Dutch guidelines, which don't use CT at all, as well as some of the other guidelines, which are more modulated. So when we met to talk about the 2020 guidelines, there was really a paradigm shift. And I think we very much recognize that the pendulum perhaps had swung too far towards evaluating everybody because there are some inherent risks with all types of investigation. And so the goals were a little bit different than in 2012. The first was really to provide a more individualized approach to hematuria and try to tailor the intensity of the evaluation uh, to that individual patient's risk. And we accepted the fact that this approach will not identify every urinary tract cancer. In fact, that was the model that was originally used, the 2012 guidelines, and there was a lot of scrutiny on those over time because of how aggressive they were. And so we took a slightly different stance, which said, look, we're going to modulate this in a risk-mediated manner, but we may not pick up every single type of urinary tract cancer. Our hope was this more modulated approach would allow for evaluation to be standardized. It would decrease variation between due to patient preference and even provider preference. Um, it would risk delayed diagnosis for those patients and providers who didn't want to undergo an evaluation because of perhaps the intensity of it. And I think we wanted to try to minimize or avoid unnecessary evaluations in low-risk patients. And we're going to talk about who a low-risk patient is, but we've all seen them in our offices. We've all seen them in our clinics. And I think we all look at these patients and think to ourselves, perhaps the testing that we're doing is really perhaps too much or unnecessary in these patients. So what I'm going to do over the next 20 minutes or so is really walk you through um, the 2020 guidelines. And I think the, the important thing I'm going to try to do is to break this down into components that we would perhaps see in the office and how you would approach those. And, and certainly I'm not gonna be reading down a laundry list of every guideline statement, um, but when I have certain ones, I'm trying to try to give you some references to give you a sense of how we thought about this problem and perhaps why the guideline statement was crafted as it was. So let's start with diagnosis and definition. 
And when we look back at this, um, indeed, very similar to 2012, this definition did not change. Microscopic hematuria is still defined as greater than equal to three red blood cells per high power field on microscopic evaluation of a single properly collected urine specimen. There are two key points here. The first is why a single specimen? And I think the, the reality is, is that we know that hematuria can be intermittent in nature. And so mandating multiple repeat um, uh, micro, microscopic analyses may miss or may mask the intermittency of hematuria. Why three red blood cells per high power field? Probably the best data is from uh, Rich Matulowitz and uh, colleagues from Northwestern. They looked at a cohort of 46,000 patients. And what they identified when looking at different cut points, as shown here on the left of this figure of urinalyses, is that the highest sensitivity and the lowest negative likelihood ratio for hematuria with respect to identifying cancer down the line was at a threshold of three to 10 red blood cells per high power field. So it's important to recognize that a urinalysis is a screening test. And so you want a screening test to perhaps have the highest sensitivity because you don't want those patients to perhaps not be evaluated. Now, what about um, dipstick? And, and I'm sure many of you get this in your office setting. We see this in our office setting. And we have a lot of referrals that come into our urologic clinics for hematuria that's been picked up on a dipstick alone. And it's a critical point to define microhematuria as being on a formal urinalysis. It is not defined by dipstick alone, but a positive dipstick should prompt formal microscopic evaluation of urine. And let me tell you why. So why can't we evaluate on dipstick alone? Because dipstick doesn't measure red blood cells. It actually detects peroxidase activity of hemoglobin. And so therefore there's the risk of false positives. There's false positives from myoglobinuria, dehydration, exercise, menstrual blood in women, and certainly any patients that have had any sort of perineal prep or gynecologic prep with povidone iodine. That being said, if I take you back to this Matulowitz paper, what was shown very nicely is that the extent of blood on a dipstick is indeed associated with an increased likelihood of having a positive urinalysis, and that in turn was associated with a higher risk of patients having malignancy. Okay, so the more positive a dipstick is, the more likely that the urinalysis is gonna be positive, the more likely that these patients may theoretically have cancer. So take home point, if you have a positive dipstick, repeat a formal urinalysis. The more positive a dipstick is, the more likely that urinalysis is to be positive. Let's go to um, our initial evaluation. So um, critical point, we should be performing the same evaluation in patients, irrespective if they're on any type of antiplatelet or any type of anticoagulation therapy. We did some work recently in our health system where we reviewed all of these patients that had ICD-9 or ICD-10 codes for hematuria. And what we identified was that there were a significant number of patients who were never referred to urology. And when we reviewed the notes on these patients, 
it was clear that our primary care colleagues were attributing the blood in the urine to the patients being on some type of anticoagulation. Key point is that the anticoagulation may make the hematuria worse, but the anticoagulation cannot be used as an explanation for the patient having hematuria alone. There are many studies published on this. One of them is from Ku and colleagues. I've listed this here. Over 400 patients with microscopic hematuria, 6% of patients had genital urinary malignancy in their study, 15% of patients in their cohort were on anticoagulation, and there was no difference in the diagnosis of cancer based on anticoagulation status. Okay, so key take-home message, whether or not the patients are on any kind of anticoagulation or antiplatelet therapy, they need the same evaluation for microscopic hematuria. Now, let's assume hematuria is attributed to a urinary tract infection. It is essential that we obtain a repeat urinalysis following treatment to ensure the resolution of hematuria. Now, one of the challenging things we found is, um, when do you get this repeat urinalysis? Uh, and there's no good data on it. Um, we broadly wrote it as three weeks to three months. My personal belief is three weeks is probably too early. And if somebody had blood in their urine attributable to infection and inflammation from that, my recommendation in my practice will probably be to wait about two to three months um, because I think you'll end up chasing potentially some um, residual inflammation by rechecking too early. Why is it critical that we get a repeat UA on these patients? And, and I think I, we can use women as an example, but it's really true for women and men. We all see a lot of patients, women in particular, who have irritative voiding symptoms. And these irritative voiding symptoms are often attributed to infection. And studies show that women are more likely to receive these empiric courses of antibiotics and sometimes multiple antibiotics without ever having had a culture result. And so they're treated and they're treated and they're never evaluated. And so I think all of us have to remember that one of the causes of irritating vo irritated voiding symptoms in women can certainly be bladder cancer, carcinoma in situ. It could certainly be urinary stone disease. It could certainly be foreign body. It could be one of many different pathologies in the bladder. And as a consequence, if a patient has irritated voiding symptoms that was attributed to an infection, they must have a culture to document infection, yes or no, but they certainly should have a urinalysis down the line once you've treated their infection, if culture positive, to document resolution. So I started my talk uh, by saying that I've been involved in a number of different studies that have looked at the value of urinary biomarkers, and a lot of them are looking at them, uh, including some that I'm currently working on, in a hematuria setting. And I would tell you that the take-home message in 2020 is that if you have a patient presenting to you with microscopic hematuria, urine cytology, or even perhaps some of these more sophisticated urine-based biomarkers that look at either protein or RNA or other type of genomics really should not be used in this initial evaluation. There's some nice data that was published about six or seven years ago that looked at almost 3,000 patients with microscopic hematuria and of this entire cohort, only two of them had a negative evaluation with a positive cytology and were eventually diagnosed with urothelial cancer. 
And in this cohort who received cytologies, the entire cohort did, there was a 10% false positive rate. So upfront, standard patient microscopic hematuria, we should not be using cytology or urine-based biomarkers. Now, one important caveat is who perhaps should we be using this in? I think there's some unique situations. So let's say we have a patient who has persistent microscopic hematuria. Perhaps persistent microscopic hematuria associated with irritative voiding symptoms, or they have risk factors, for example, for carcinoma in situ or bladder cancer, then I think we've written the guidelines that you may use cytology in this setting. And, and I think, uh, as with everything, this is a changing landscape. So one never knows the next set of guidelines that comes out in five to six years. Will biomarkers permeate increasingly? Perhaps, but right now the take-home message is no cytology, no biomarkers for microscopic hematuria initial evaluation. Now, the key change in the 2020 guidelines is that we are going to a risk-stratified approach. And patients presenting with microscopic hematuria should now be categorized as low, intermediate and high risk for urinary tract malignancy. And this risk stratification is based on several criteria, gender, age, smoking and tobacco exposure, what the degree of microhematuria is, how persistent it is, and whether they have a history of or an antecedent um, documentation of gross hematuria. So here's the risk stratification table. I'm going to walk you through this and give you a sense of exactly what we're looking at. So let's start on the far left-hand side, which is those patients who are low risk. Remember that low risk patients must meet all of these criteria. And they're the following. They're younger patients, women less than 50, men less than 40. They're patients who are never smokers or those that have had under a 10 pack year smoking history those with three to 10 red blood cells per high power field, and no risk factors for urethelial cancer. Now, what do you mean by risk factors for urethelial cancer? I've listed them at the bottom. So the risk factors that we identified here, irritative lower urinary tract symptoms, prior radiotherapy to the pelvis, certain chemotherapy agents such as cyclophosphamide or ifosfamide, certain occupations, indwelling foreign bodies, urethral catheter, suprapubic tube, for example, or a family history of urethelial cancer, okay? So a low-risk patient has to meet all of these criteria to be considered low-risk. An intermediate-risk patient is a patient who meets one of the following criteria. An older patient, 50 to 59 in women, 40 to 60 in men, their tobacco exposure is a little bit more, 10 to 30 pack years, perhaps uh, urinalysis that now shows a little bit more blood, 11 to 25 red blood cells per high power field. Um, included in this group is a low risk patient who's not been evaluated before. And we're gonna talk about this in a minute, but a low risk patient who perhaps comes back to your office, say six to 12 months later, who still has evidence of microhematuria is no longer low risk. They're now considered intermediate risk and should follow evaluation in the intermediate algorithm or any additional risk factors as I've highlighted below. And a high risk patient meets any one of these criteria. So this is men and women over the age of 60, those with a greater than 30 pack year smoking history, 
greater than 25 red blood cells on your analysis, or if they come to you and they report a history of gross hematuria. One of the key things I would, take, uh, I would have you take away is um, one of the questions I've been asked a lot is, well, you just talk about smoking and pack use. What about patients who chew? What about those that use cigars? And, and I would say that that's a tough one for us to capture. There's not very good data on that. And so although this packier concept is really formalized in, in cigarette smoke, um, I would look at a similar exposure length when looking at different types of tobacco exposure, but admittedly, these are not perfectly defined in the literature. So why is there this concept of defining risk? And the simple answer is, is that, look, the likelihood of malignancy varies by risk group. And so we're trying to modulate our evaluation accordingly. Um, one example of this is the hematuria risk index. And this is a very nice system that's been popularized by the Kaiser group. And for example, in their model, they have low, moderate, and high risk patients. And in their cohort of over 4,000 patients, low risk patients had a risk of cancer of 0.2%, moderate 1.5%, and high 11%. So clearly we want to tailor the evaluation based upon the pretest probability of these patients having cancer. So let's look at low risk. How do we now recommend we evaluate low risk patients? Key point, there's now a shared decision-making concept. And this shared decision-making is between you and the patient regarding two options. Firstly, you have the option now of simply repeating the urinalysis within six months, or you could proceed with a cystoscopy with a renal ultrasound. And the, the whole concept of repeating the urinalysis versus choosing a cystoscopy with a renal ultrasound is predicated a little bit on patient preference, your preference, perhaps your perception and their perception of them being a compliant patient, and certainly the, the inherent risks associated with any type of testing. Now I mentioned this before, but I wanna hammer this point home that, look, if a patient was initially low risk, patient comes to your office, they have five red blood cells per high power field, shared decision-making, they say, you know something, I'd like to come back in six months with another urinalysis. When they come back in six months, if they have persistent hematuria, you cannot keep them in a low risk group. And the reason we crafted this this way is we didn't want patients to be eternally spinning in a low risk evaluation where all they're getting is serial urinalyses every six months. By definition, they then default to intermediate or high risk based on how much blood is in the urinalysis. And then they really do need to have a cystoscopic evaluation and some type of upper tract imaging based upon their risk group. And what's the rationale for low risk? Well, look, I talked about it before with the HRI, the risk for malignancy is low. We know that imaging itself, and there's been some literature published on this, has risks for incidental findings, and incidental findings in turn may result in collateral damage to the patient with regards to more evaluations, procedures, and whatnot. And although cystoscopy is frankly a fairly safe procedure, there's not an insignificant or there's a small risk of infection as well as patient discomfort. All right, let's transition over now to the intermediate risk group. For intermediate risk patients, patients should undergo a cystoscopy and a renal ultrasound. What I've highlighted here is a breakdown of renal ultrasound versus CT, okay? 
And what are the key differences? If we look at renal ultrasound, it's less expensive than CT. There's no ionizing radiation. There's no intravenous contrast. It's actually quite good at identifying renal cortical lesions. Where it is clearly, I think, inferior to CT is it's certainly operator dependent, and there's a low sensitivity for upper tract urothelial carcinoma. So why did we talk about renal ultrasound for intermediate risk disease? Well, I mentioned to you that it's one flaw perhaps is that the sensitivity of CT urography is much better than renal ultrasound for upper tract carcinomas. And so if you have a high suspicion for CTU, um, I mean, if you have a high suspicion for upper tract disease, CTU certainly offers the optimal detection. But the reality is the overall rate of upper tract carcinomas are low when you look at uh, hematuria-based studies. This is a nice study from Commander and colleagues published back in 2017 that looked at the detection of upper tract carcinoma in patients who had CT urography. And when you look at patients with gross macroscopic hematuria, only 0.6% of patients had upper tract carcinomas. And when you look at those with microhematuria, no patient had an upper tract carcinoma. And so because of this, we felt comfortable that the likelihood of missing an upper tract carcinoma in a patient whose intermediate risk microhematuria would be quite low. It's also important to highlight this very nice paper from Halpern and colleagues in JAMA and Internal Medicine that compares hematuria evaluations and really looks at renal ultrasound with cystoscopy and CT with cystoscopy, admittedly across an entire cohort of patients being evaluated for microhematuria. And what it shows very nicely is that when you look at all patients with microhematuria, when compared to ultrasound, CT will pick up one additional patient with cancer, but at a cost of almost $6 million more. And so clearly, I think we believe that until you get to the high-risk group, um, CT scans largely can be obviated for evaluation. So let's get to the high-risk group. So I just talked about, this is the group where the pretest probability for cancer is the highest. The pretest probability for any kind of urinary tract pathology is the highest, and therefore they should receive a cystoscopy and some type of axial upper tract imaging. The preferred modality of choice, and we had a lot of discussion about this, is still multiphasic CT. And I'd highlight for you that a triphasic CT is essential. Non-contrast, a nephrogenic phase, which is about 100 seconds after evaluation, uh, after administration of contrast, and then an excretory phase, 10 to 15 minutes later. And why do you need all three of these phases? So you can see very clearly here on the non-contrast and the nephrogenic picture in the right kidney, perhaps some suggestion of a soft tissue filling defect, but it's not until contrast is passing through the urinary collecting system that you can indeed see a soft tissue filling defect and ipsilateral hydroureteronephrosis. What is the diagnostic accuracy for detecting upper tracted bladder cancer by CT urography? Well, frankly, it's excellent. Sensitivity of 90%, specificity of over 95%. One of the key points that many medical centers, including ours, have tried to do is trying to decrease the radiation exposure of CT. And so this concept of split-dose CT urography is being used more and more. On the left-hand side here, I've highlighted what is a standard CT urogram. It's a non-contrast picture 
then the patient gets a bolus injection. 90 seconds after that, they get a nephrogenic image. 10 minutes later, an excretory image. So the patient is having three runs through the CAT scanner. The split dose protocol says, okay, we're gonna get a non-contrast imaging study. Then we're going to give the patient half of the initial bolus of contrast. But instead of getting a CT scan then, we're gonna wait about nine minutes and then give a second bolus of IV contrast. And then we're gonna take pictures about 90 seconds after that second bolus. What's happening there is the first bolus of contrast you gave is now in the excretory system. The second bolus of contrast you gave is now in the nephrogenic component. And so you're able to achieve a CT urogram, but you're avoiding one run through the CAT scan. What are the contraindications to CT urography? There's relative and absolute. Certainly first trimester pregnancy is more of an absolute contraindication. And depending upon your individual hospital threshold, there's an estimated GFR cutoff. At our hospital, patients between 40 and 50 uh, mils per minute per 1.73 meters squared receive a hydration protocol. Those that are less than 40 have more of an absolute contraindication and we shift over more towards MR urography. There are certain relative contraindications, certainly contrast dye exposure. Um, some patients are allergic to it. I would say the vast majority of these were able to overcome through the use of steroids and antihistamines, but certainly it depends upon their reaction. And, and as I mentioned earlier, it's not a really a contraindication, but patients and, and you as a urologist should be cognizant of the radiation exposure that's inherent in CT imaging. So let's say a patient can't get a CT urogram. Uh, either due to patient preference, due to uh, GFR threshold, then our next modality of choice is an MR urogram. Why MR urogram? Look, it has excellent visualization of the parenchyma and the excretory system. It obviates the radiation exposure of a CT scan, and you can really give non-ionic contrast medium, gadolinium, to fairly low GFR thresholds, and I'll talk about that in just a moment. What are the disadvantages? Well, it's a longer study. It's almost three to four times longer than a CT urogram. Certainly patients that have claustrophobia may have significant issues when they're in the chamber. And depending upon the individual patient's payer, as well as the geographic region, uh, there may be anywhere between a three and six or $700 cost differential between CT urography and MR urography. There are some absolute contraindications, certainly pacemakers or any kind of mobile metal fragments such as welders. At least at our hospital, we have to get some sort of plain film radiography beforehand to document that there is no metal fragments. Um, and then there's this question of nephrogenic systemic fibrosis, historically written that patients under a GFR of 30 had a dose independent risk from gadolinium of developing NSF. Interestingly, the AACR guidelines have changed a lot for radiology, and indeed it appears that with some of the newer gadolinium formulations, the risk of NSF is actually quite low. And so many hospitals, including ours, has started to use gadolinium even in these patients with lower GFR thresholds. Well, what if the patient can't get a CT and then they can't get uh, an MR? What are your options? So you can certainly, if you can't give them contrast, you can either get a CT or an MR non-contrast for these high-risk patients. You can certainly, as we talked about, for low and intermediate risk, renal ultrasonography can be obtained as well. 
but it's important for high-risk patients that these patients really should also have some sort of excretory system Im imaging in the form of retrograde pilography. And what I'd like to finish with the last few minutes of is how do you follow up a patient who had a negative evaluation? So let's say we have a patient who um, was intermediate or high risk, okay? And they went through the microhematory evaluation, uh, had upper tract imaging, had evaluation by cystoscopy, and it was negative. The guidelines write that you may repeat a urinalysis within 12 months. And, and I think broadly speaking, the consensus in the group was six to 12 months, but I think certainly getting some type of repeat evaluation would be prudent, 12 months would be sort of the, the recommended time frame. Now look, what happens if they come back in 12 months and the urinalysis is negative? Um, then I think we wanted to draw the line where we took the burden off of urology practices where patients weren't having to get urinalyses in perpetuity. And indeed we wrote that you may discontinue further evaluation. And if the patient had concerns about discontinuing, certainly we think that this evaluation perhaps could occur in the setting of their primary care physicians. Now, let's say a patient had a negative initial microscopic hematuria evaluation, and they come back in at say 12 months, and they have persistent hematuria on their repeat urinalysis. Then I think there comes back to this concept of shared decision-making on the value of additional evaluation, okay? And, and what I mean by that is um, a con conversation about how much hematuria do they have, um, as well as perhaps new symptoms, as well as their desire for repeat evaluation and your concern that perhaps the initial evaluation was maybe suboptimal, Maybe you had some questions on it. Maybe it was negative, but it truly wasn't negative. It was more, you didn't identify anything that was positive. So it depends on your level of concern, but there should be a conversation about that. Now, who really should be having a repeat evaluation? Let's say you had a patient, negative microscopic hematuria evaluation, they come in at 12 months, and now they're telling you they have new urologic symptoms. Now they're having no lower urinary tract symptoms, frequency and urgency, they're having pelvic pain. What if their initial urinalysis showed three to 10 red blood cells per high power field, and now they come into your office and they have 50 red blood cells per high power field? Or they've now told you in the last few months they've developed gross or macroscopic hematuria evaluation. Then we believe that clearly there's evidence that the landscape is changing, Perhaps early on, you just caught them at a phase where they had not fully declared themselves, and these patients should have a repeat evaluation, although the repeat evaluation should now follow the risk algorithm we identified before. So you put them back into that whole risk group, find out what risk group they're in, and then we would recommend evaluation at that time based upon the risk stratification model. Um, that essentially is the summary of, of the, the guidelines. Um, I'm happy to take some questions. Uh, the guidelines themselves, uh, as I said, they were, they were due to be presented actually just uh, about four or five days ago. They are not yet up on the AUA website, but I anticipate probably in the next three to four weeks they will, and there'll be the full data on all of the guidelines. And, and certainly all of the information regarding our decision-making process of why we crafted the guideline statements as we did. 
Um, again, I really thank you all for your attention and your time. I know all of us are starting to get busier clinically, so I hope you found this valuable. And certainly um, to the UCSF team for all your efforts in putting this together, I think it's really a wonderful effort. Um, and I'm happy to take any questions that, that may have been coming over to Jay and, and going from there. Thanks, Dr. Rahman. Uh, there were a few questions that came in. The first one was regarding, uh, towards the beginning of your talk, uh, one of the JAMA studies uh, regarding the cost effectiveness of different um, guidelines for uh, diagnosis. It said uh, the JAMA study was interesting, but can you comment on uh, the assumption they used in their study? For instance, is there real world, world evidence that hematary workups really increase cancer risks? Yeah, so that's a great question. So um, the, the answer is uh, no. I mean, I think all of these data regarding the theoretical risk of malignancy, um, which is really what these are looking at, and, and we see this when we look at the stone literature, we see this with the hematuria evaluations, they're all based on theoretical cohorts of patients with regards to the diagnostic accuracy of picking up hematuria and then the inherent risks of obtaining a CT scan. But you are right that one of the challenging portions, and, and I was one of the ones that helped craft the upper track imaging guideline statements, um, there is not a very good data set that says the actual aerial risk of a patient undergoing hematuria who's had CT scan is X, Y, or Z. Okay. And then two questions uh, from the same person. One was asking about secondhand smoke and if there's any, uh, you know, data on that. And then the second question from the same person was um, regarding cytologies for microscopic hematuria evaluation. So the question was, you don't, uh, if you don't recommend cytology for uh, microscopic uh, hematuria evaluation. Sure. So um, I'll take the second question first, which is, what is the role of cytology and urine-based biomarkers for the evaluation of microhematuria? patient walks in your office with microhematuria, initial evaluation, you should not be obtaining a urine cytology, you should not be using urinary biomarkers in your initial evaluation. All of those potentially have a role in the patient with recurrent hematuria, persistent hematuria, or hematuria associated with any type of symptomatology. With regard to the smoking question, um, this was a tough one, uh, and, and your question on secondhand smoke is a good one. Um, there's a lot of questions on risks of other types of smoke besides tobacco exposure. I talked a little bit about cigars. I talked a little bit about chew. Um, and, and the best data out there, frankly, is only on cigarette smoke. And so we roughly crafted these smoking exposure components in the risk stratification based on um, smoke inhalation from cigarettes, um, but your question is a good one and is not so clear. How do we evaluate some of these other types of exposures of tobacco? Thank you. And next question is, if you have a very positive dipstick, so large hemoglobin, but a negative microscopic analysis, would you still proceed with further hematuria workup? Yeah, that's a really good question. We, we really went back and forth on this. And, um, and, and so our, our, the, the take-home message was as follows. Um, we really wanted to make sure that hematuria evaluations were not triggered by a dipstick because I think you start going down a slippery slope. 
So let's say we have somebody who has large blood on dipstick, but a negative urinalysis. Um, obviously, you know, your, your spidey sense is tingling because you had a large amount of blood on dipstick. Um, and so although we would not recommend a full hematory evaluation based on dipstick alone, certainly in practice, I would recommend rechecking a urinalysis on that patient, not at six months, not at 12 months, but probably at about one to three months. And that may be due to the intermittent nature of microhematuria. Uh, the next question was, if you have a female patient greater than 50 who presents with a UTI and gross hematuria, can we still reevaluate in three months with the urine analysis and assume the gross hematuria was due to the UTI? Good question. So it comes back to this concept of how do you manage the patient who has evidence of a urinary tract infection? And I think there's a few key components. Number one, there has to be culture-documented UTI. Okay, so if there's not a culture-documented UTI, you should treat this person as a high-risk person because they had over 25 red blood cells per high-power field. If, however, you had a culture-positive, it showed an organism, they had gross hematuria or even large-volume microhematuria associated with a clear culture-positive result, yes, I think it's very appropriate at that point to wait, say, three weeks to three months. I would recommend closer to two to three months repeat a urinalysis then, and if their symptoms have abated and the urinalysis has abated, then I think it's reasonable to attribute their blood to their infection. Okay. And then these next two questions are, are pretty similar. So one was, if a patient has two negative evaluations one year apart, but persistently has microhematuria, is this labeled as benign microscopic hematuria and no further evaluation is needed? And then the second question kind of on the same uh, topic was, when do you discontinue microscopic hematuria workup for someone with persistent microscopic hematuria based on these new guidelines? Yeah. So, so I think the, the, the challenge really becomes exactly what you have highlighted, which is, all right, um, what happens if you have somebody who has persistent microscopic hematuria and perhaps has had one or even two evaluations? And in one of the last guideline statements that we write about is, I think the patient needs to be made aware that they have persistent microscopic hematuria. I think they need to be aware that if they have worsening of symptoms or they develop gross macroscopic hematuria, that this needs to be evaluated. But I think certainly after two shared decision-making regarding the fact that some patients indeed without obvious pathology may have small amounts of blood in the urine that may not be urologic in nature, maybe nephrologic, and therefore should continue to just have um, conservative management. The last point I would make is remember that not all patients who have microscopic hematuria are due to a urologic cause. And so in some of those cases, it would be important to make sure they don't have, for example, red blood cell cast or proteinuria, something that would suggest that they have a nephrologic cause, in which case their, their medical renal disease may be the cause of blood in the urine. Okay. Uh, and the next question was related to, I guess, uh, CT scans not, not detecting uh, a mass. So it was a, a case that this, uh, this uh, viewer had that the CT aerogram was normal, but they did cystoscopy and there's blood from the left UO and your ureteroscopy showed an upper tract cancer. Um, was that an issue of different quality CT scans or just a pitfall of you know, the CT scan itself? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, so, so 
as with every test, I, I showed you some data that basically shows that the sensitivity and specificity of CT scans for bladder and upper tract carcinomas is really quite good. Uh, it's over 90%, but, but nothing is perfect. So some of the challenges inherently are, um, look, you need to have enough of a lesion that you could identify some sort of irregularity within the collecting system. In some cases, um, cortical irregular, I mean, sorry, collecting system irregularities may be read as sort of papillary necrosis or papillary prominent papilla. So in some cases, carcinoma in situ may not be a clearly defined lesion. So I think that in all cases, your clinical suspicion should drive you. So in this case, for example, blood emanating from the orifice clearly alerted you that there is a potential for upper tract pathology and you pursued that. And so you have to take all tests with, you know, a grain of salt. Okay. And then for intermediate and high-risk patients that get renal ultrasound instead of axial imaging, do they also need retrograde pilograms? Good question. So, so uh, let's go to high-risk first. Remember, high-risk patients should be evaluated, preferably with either CT urogram, MR urogram, and only if they cannot obtain that renal ultrasonography. And that person should, in turn, have a retrograde pilogram associated with that for high-risk patients. For an intermediate risk patient, given the low likelihood or pretest probability of upper tract carcinomas, renal ultrasound alone is sufficient for evaluating the upper tracts because it does allow us to find the evidence of stone disease, certain pathologies. And look, if you see on ultrasound evidence of, say, hydronephrosis, then we would certainly recommend at that point you escalate your imaging to CT urography because you're seeing some evidence of ipsilateral abnormalities that require further investigation. Okay. And then one is going back to hematuria with UTIs is sometimes there's the issue of a patient that was empirically started on antibiotics for hematuria and then afterwards you're not really sure if it's due to an infection versus another cause. Yeah, so that, that, that's a tough one. Um, you, you know, clearly we see these in our practice, patients who uh, come in, they have an, a history of hematuria, um, they have a suspected history of infection, they receive several days of antibiotics, um, their culture is negative, you're not sure is it negative because they never had an infection or because the antibiotic treated the infection. So these patients, I think it depends a little bit on your degree of concern. Um, you know, in my, in my view, if it's a lower risk person on paper, other than um, what we've described there with the hematuria, I'd probably repeat it in two to three months. If it was a 60-year-old smoker um, who still had some residual lower urinary tract symptoms, I may be worried a little bit more about you know, underlying pathology and may have a lower threshold for initiating a workup. So I think some of it, truthfully, there's no, there's no great playbook on that scenario. I think some of it is error on the side of caution, but at the same time, look at a little bit at the pretest probability of the patient to help guide that. Okay. And then the next question is regarding the role of nephrology. If there's a, at, at any point you would uh, have nephrology evaluate the patient for after a negative workup. So I think certainly um, on, on the urinalysis, uh, remember that a urinalysis itself not only gives us information, regarding number of red blood cells per high power field, specific gravity, stuff like that. But it does give evidence of the presence of um, proteinuria, 
Um, there is some information if you look under a microscope at the presence of red blood cell casts. And so I would say that our recommendation is as follows, and the guidelines are written as, if there is evidence on urinalysis or urine microscopy of a nephrologic cause, evidenced by dysmorphic red blood cells, RBC casts, proteinuria, that you should complete your hematuria evaluation as we normally do. However, these patients should also probably have a nephrologic referral for evaluation of medical renal diseases. Okay. And then the last question was, if there's any evidence for lifetime risk of malignancy in a patient with a negative workup? Um, so data regarding the lifetime risk of cancer in a hematuria patient who's had a negative workup. So I, I would say uh, no. I, I don't think, uh, as far as I can recall from looking at all of the data we looked at, I don't think that there was any um, long-term actuarial, actuarial risk of cancer in those patients. Probably there's one or two studies that are published on patients who had a hematuria evaluation that was negative, who then had hematuria evaluations three to five years later, okay? So not a lifetime, but they had about three to five years elapsed between. And the likelihood after an initial negative evaluation of then finding subsequent disease on a repeat evaluation within the next three to five years was about three to 5%. So it was actually fairly low overall. And so one would imagine the lifetime risk with multiple studies is probably 5% or less, but it's not zero. And this is why I think when you discharge a patient from your practice, they need to be made aware that they need to have some control over their own care and they need to be vigilant of their own symptoms. All right. Well, thank you, Dr. Raman. And thanks for all the attendees for um, joining the lecture. Definitely a big uh, shift in how we're going to be managing uh, microscopic hematuria in the future. Um, and for everyone that joined, joined the lecture, just a reminder to fill out the lecture evaluation um, on, on, online. Um, and then I think we got through all the questions. Uh, so thank you again. Great. Thanks a lot, everybody. Have a great day. Thanks, Jay. Thank you, Dr. Raman. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Learn more by visiting our website, urologycovid.ucsf.edu.